Hello and welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehold Public Law Podcast. This is the first of what we hope will be many interesting podcasts dealing with development in the world of public and administrative law. By way of background, my name is Sahil Kerr and I'm an associate in the firm's public and administrative law disputes team. The team does a wide range of public law work, which, simply put, is the law that governs the interaction between individuals and private bodies on one hand and the government on the other. And what we do as a team is help claimants, defendants, interested parties and intervening third parties in administrative and public law issues in a whole host of proceedings, whether that is judicial reviews, tribunal proceedings, government inquiries or disciplinary matters. The reason we thought this podcast might be of interest to listeners both inside and outside the legal world is because public law is truly in the spotlight. The extensive coverage of the Miller case dealing with the Prime Minister's decision to prorogue Parliament was a good example of how public law in the UK truly does deal with questions of fundamental importance to the country and the way it's run. And seeing the discussions across social media suggested that there is an audience out there that's keen to engage with public law issues. And hence this podcast. Public law is also central, of course, to all our commercial clients. Commercial and regulated industries are faced with an increasingly complex landscape of public sector law and governance, resulting in more and more contentious issues arising which require specialist advice and input. What this podcast series aims to do is to track key developments in public and administrative law, with an eye on cases that affect individuals and businesses up and down the country, as well as follow major changes in policy. But back to the subject of today's podcast, we kick things off with a discussion on a Supreme Court decision dealing with an important constitutional question on the powers of tribunals and local authorities, the decision in RR and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Lady Hale, the President of the Supreme Court, handed down judgment in November and the case has received considerable press attention already. What we'll try and do is give you an overview of the judgment try and make sense of why uh, the various courts decided the way they did, and discuss finally how the Supreme Court's decision could have a wide-ranging impact. Now, HSF acted for three high-profile charities, Liberty, the Child Poverty Action Group, or CPAC, and the Public Law Project, who jointly intervened in these proceedings in support of the appellant. Now, NGOs often intervene in, in such cases from a public interest perspective and in order to provide the court with a broader policy context to a particular issue that may be before the court. And we were delighted to be given permission to first intervene by the court and make oral submissions and eventually to assist the clients achieve a great outcome. I'm joined today by Jennifer McLeod, who's a barrister at Brookcourt Chambers and was one of the barristers, along with Martin Chamberlain QC, who's now Mr Justice Chamberlain, and Tom Royston, all of whom represented the charities in the Supreme Court. Welcome, Jenny. And it's really great to have you with us as we kick off the first of what we hope will be many podcasts in the glamorous world of public law. Um, and perhaps we could start off uh, by learning a bit more about you and the kind of work you do. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on today. I am, as you've said, a junior barrister at Brick Court Chambers. And I have a mixed practice, so I can be working on a high-value commercial matter one day and another day be off in the international courts or a tribunal dealing with human rights violations. One central part of my work, however, has always been domestic, public and constitutional law, and I've been very lucky to work with you and the rest of your team on a number of occasions in that area. That's excellent. 
Which brings us to the subject of today's podcast, the Supreme Court's decision in RR. Now, the decision was handed down by the Supreme Court in November, following a hearing in July, and has garnered considerable media attention, and was a case that really had a fundamental constitutional question at its heart. Jenny, the case now, of course, has a slightly complicated background. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about how we ended up in the Supreme Court in the first place? I can. The starting point in all of this is the Carmichael case, which is often referred to as M.A., And that was a challenge to the bedroom tax in respect of disabled adults. The basic facts underlying the Carmichael case are that due to Mrs Carmichael's disability, Mr and Mrs Carmichael needed separate bedrooms. However, their housing benefit was subject to a deduction, the bedroom tax, for having an extra bedroom, without regard to the fact that they actually needed both bedrooms for medical reasons. Now, in that case, the MA case or as it is sometimes referred to, Carmichael 1, the Supreme Court held that the application of the bedroom tax to people such as Mr and Mrs Carmichael was in violation of their rights under Article 14 in conjunction with Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, some listeners will be aware that other issues with that case were taken from MA to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, and that there was further success in challenging elements of the bedroom tax there. However, for now, we need to focus on the Carmichael element of that case. So, um, what, how did the government truly respond to the decision in what we now call Carmichael 1? Well, originally, the government, perhaps surprisingly, stated in a circular to all local authorities that no immediate action needs to be taken. Local authorities must continue to apply the rules. And it wasn't until the 2nd of March 2017 that new regulations were brought in that covered the position of Mr and Mrs Carmichael. That left open the question as to the proper regime to govern the period prior to the new regulations coming into force. Which really is what leads us on to now Carmichael 2. Exactly. So following their success in Carmichael 1, the Carmichaels unsurprisingly went back to the tribunals and sought housing benefit on the basis that the regulations in question should be disapplied. Now, the Carmichaels were originally successful in slightly different ways in the tribunals, but the Secretary of State appealed to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal in Carmichael II handed down a majority judgment that was somewhat controversial. The Court of Appeal, or at least the majority of it, decided that the tribunals were not entitled to disapply the regulations that had been held to be in violation of the Convention. Insofar as this caused any injustice, they said, appellants could vindicate their rights by way of a separate claim for damages under the Human Rights Act in the civil courts. Now, Mrs Carmichael, having not been given permission to appeal to the Supreme Court by the Court of Appeal, didn't herself renew that application to the Supreme Court. Um, And is that how the RR uh, family got involved? That's exactly right. So RR was a very similar case to Carmichael because, in essence, the couple in question needed two bedrooms because of a medical disability. Now, before the Carmichael II judgment, the first tier tribunal had been persuaded to disapply the regulations. But after Carmichael II, the upper tribunal was, of course, bound to apply that judgment and to apply the bedroom tax to RR. 
RR was thereafter granted what's called a leapfrog appeal directly to the Supreme Court. And it was at that stage that it was joined by a number of incredible interveners, including the ones that we both acted for. So what ended up being the key question before the Supreme Court in RR? Well, really what the court had to do was consider the effect of its earlier decision in Carmichael 1. As we've said, that earlier decision found that elements of the bedroom tax, as it applied to this category of claimants, was in breach of convention rights. And therefore, the primary question was whether following that decision, local authorities, the first tier tribunal and upper tribunal had to carry on applying the regulations, even though they had been held to be in breach of human rights. Or, as we said, and as the appellant said, whether they were in fact entitled or indeed obliged to come to a different human rights compliance solution. Now, that question sounds quite narrow, but actually it had really significant implications because the broad issue that it raised was whether courts, tribunals or any decision maker in any public authority when making a decision could ignore or disapply secondary legislation when that secondary legislation conflicted with human rights. To to summarise then, what eventually happened is that the court allowed the appeal and said that local authorities or tribunals could in fact disregard the regulations when they were incompatible with convention rights. Exactly. And so, so what bits of the judgment really jumped out at you? I think for my part, one of the striking things is just how strident this decision is. The court gave a, a unanimous judgment and concluded, and I'll read out the relevant section, it concluded that there was nothing unconstitutional about a public authority, court, or tribunal disapplying a provision of subordinate legislation, which would otherwise result in acting incompatibly with a convention right, where this is necessary in order to comply with the Human Rights Act. Subordinate legislation is subordinate to the requirements of an Act of Parliament. The Human Rights Act is an Act of Parliament, and its requirements are clear. Now, I think public lawyers like you and me had for many years assumed that that was the case. And in fact, even the government had been acting on that basis until quite recently. The problem with Carmichael too is that it had really challenged that fundamental assumption. And I think many of us breathed a sigh of relief to see that the court had firmly restated the orthodox view of the law. Um, and as, as Baroness Hale said, this was fundamentally an important constitutional question. Um, well, I suppose the next question, therefore, is... What do we think of the ramifications of a decision that was this robust? In my view, I think there are three primary ramifications from it. First, it obviously overrules the highly problematic judgment of the majority of the Court of Appeal in Carmichael II. That had created... A, a very serious lacuna in the operation of the rule of law because it meant that the executive could, in essence, ignore judgments of the Supreme Court unless and until it decided it was happy to accept them. B, it created a very serious gap in human rights protection in the tribunals themselves, which deal with hundreds of thousands of cases every year. And C, it led to a very onerous burden on those seeking to vindicate their rights in the tribunals by suggesting that they had to bring two separate claims. So that's the first ramification. The second one, I think, is that it brings home the importance of the distinction between primary legislation and secondary legislation. It reiterates that secondary legislation, such as government regulations or statutory instruments, are, as we know, always subject to the constraints in the Human Rights Act, 
any public authority is obliged to disapply regulations when applying them would be inconsistent with the human rights in the Convention. And now one major topic in public law, as we all know, is that secondary legislation is being utilised more and more, particularly given that Brexit is on its way. And this is an important restatement that legislation will always be subject to primary legislation. And in particular, subordinate legislation must be human rights compliant. And that's really the third point, which is that the Supreme Court has emphasised and restated the importance of the Human Rights Act as a check on the powers of government at all levels. However, what I would say is despite those very important findings, all is not over. At paragraph 30, the court states that there may be cases where it is not possible for this rule to be applied because it is not clear how the statutory scheme can be applied without the offending provision. Now, on its face, this might be said to undermine the very powerful conclusions in the rest of the judgment. And it will have to be a matter for subsequent litigation, perhaps by you or by others, to see how far, if at all, this exception applies. Thanks, Jenny. That is really interesting. And as you say, the real impact will only be evident in subsequent cases. Um, but what really struck out for me is a really clear and concise judgment from the Supreme Court that restated what we always thought was a fundamental principle, but wasn't always clear. Um, and I, for one, am quite excited and interested to see how um, how courts um, look at this question um, in, in light of the raft of Brexit-related statutory instruments that have been introduced, but will continue to be introduced. Um, Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Um, Thank you very much for that snapshot, Jenny. And to the listeners, um, thank you very much for joining in. And we hope you found that informative. These are, of course, just baby steps. Um, So if you've got any feedback or would like us to cover any more topics, please do get in touch with us through the contact details, which I'm told are going to be in the show notes. Otherwise, we look forward to speaking to you all again very soon. Goodbye.